you're going to slip up. News to everybody who's trying any change at all listening to this podcast. You're going to screw up. That's not failure. Failure is stopping trying this new way of being, this change, because you fell down. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode 108 of That's So Maven. I'm officially back from my road trip. It was absolutely incredible. I'll be sharing a little bit more about it at the end of today's episode. But before we jump into today's episode, I do want to thank our sponsor, which is Imperfect Produce. You guys know I love Imperfect Produce. I get my medium organic box every single week. I also love that they're now doing some non-perishables where they're working with farms that either have an overproduction or something looks a little bit strange about the lentils or the coffee or whatever it might be, but it still tastes absolutely delicious and otherwise wouldn't be able to be sold in grocery stores. So they actually purchase all of that and are able to sell it for at least 30% less than what you would pay in grocery stores. I'm a big fan of it. I look forward to getting my box every single week. So if you're interested in trying out Imperfect Produce for yourself, make sure you head over to imperfectproduce.com and use the promo code HEALTHYMAVEN to save 50% off your first box. But let's chat about today's episode and our guest, which is Dr. Adi Jaffe. And some of you may be familiar with Dr. Jaffe or his wife, Sophie Jaffe, who runs a company called Philosophy. They make amazing, healthy food products. I really love her protein powder, by the way, if you haven't tried it. But today we're going to be chatting about Dr. Jaffe and his story, how he went down a path of addiction. He was selling drugs and ended up with nine felony convictions and ultimately became a researcher in addiction and is now helping people get through their own struggles with addiction. So it's an incredible story. It's kind of hard to believe at points, but it's true. And I'm just so honored that he came on the show to talk about it. And he's talking about something that is so important, which is shame and how we carry around so much shame. And that shame leads us to do things that we never expected we would do or be a part of. And I think so many people who have struggled with addiction find themselves down a path that they never expected to go down. And really the root cause of all of that can be shame and how to tackle it at the root. We're talking about the abstinence myth, and he doesn't believe that you necessarily need to refrain from whatever activity it was that you are participating in for the rest of your life in order to be considered recovered. It's a really interesting perspective, and he's sharing all about it. It's really an incredible episode. I don't even think I'd be able to capture it in this intro, so I'm going to keep things short and sweet. I'll save all my extra messaging for after the episode, so stay tuned for that. But otherwise, let's jump into today's show. Here's Dr. Jaffe. Hi, Adi. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Davida. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I'm so glad we got connected and I was able to dig into all of your work and all of your research. And there's just so much to learn here. So I'm just looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, I can't wait. Awesome. So for the listeners who aren't familiar with you, what's the best you know, synopsis of your journey? <laughs> I love it. I think maybe I like the synopsis better than the full <laughs> Although you can give the full story. I'm down for that too. <laughs> I'll describe it this way, right? I'm an unlikely success story in the eyes of a lot of people. And I'm trying to shift that perspective to I am a very normal 
and hopefully one day expected and appreciated story of success that can happen to anybody no matter how far down the rabbit hole of failure, addiction, mental health struggles they've gone. So let's talk about some of those struggles because you've had a very long journey to get to where you are today. And I'd love to kind of go through where things got started for you and where things might have, you know, taken a different path than you might have expected. Sure, sure. I mean, look, you know, we talked before we started this about our names. I'm from Israel, upper middle class family. My dad was a doctor, my mom, a human resource manager in one of the largest banks in Israel. By all accounts, a very normal, successful family. And I won't bore you with all the intermediary details, but I ended up being a meth dealer and addict, carrying around a gun, driving in my Lincoln Navigator in uh, you know the 99-2000 era. So that means I was bumping Dr. Dre and Eminem in case anybody cares about the actual like musical reference. Weird, eclectic musical taste. It was like Nine Inch Nails, Dre, and Eminem. It was a very bizarre combination. <laughs> but that was my 10, 12-year journey from discomfort and weirdness, not being comfortable in my skin, especially after the move to the U.S., to trying to find a better place for myself. And that's what I created. So my best thinking got me to, you know, a meth dealer. And when that ended, and it didn't end in a pretty way, and it ended initially with a motorcycle accident where I broke my leg and they found a bunch of drugs on me. And then about two, three months after that, because I was so smart, I thought I could outsmart the cops. They busted my door down on a Saturday morning and found a ton more drugs. I was facing 15, 18 years in prison. I had a $750,000 bail because of the gun. And things were not looking up. So that was 2001 when I got arrested, end of 2001. In 2002, I went to jail. I got out at the end of 2002, beginning of 2003. And that started what has been a 15, 16-year journey to, first of all, figure out what the hell went wrong in my own life. And then later on, once I figured out the answers to that and was able to solve those problems in my own life, how do I turn around and help as many other people who are kind of finding themselves stuck like I had before so they never, ever have to go through that? And it's oftentimes the people who have the hardest struggle, you know, have tackled the biggest obstacles that end up being the best resource for people who are going through a similar experience. So for anyone who's listening who might be, you know, going through something similar or know someone who's going through something similar, can you share a little bit about your addiction journey and kind of how things got started for you? Like, why do you think you found yourself gravitating towards drugs? Sure. So let me start out by this, because I want this to be the overarching message of anything that we talk about. And it's this. I don't care how far down you've gone. I don't care how judged you feel by everybody around you, including, by the way, yourself. There is a way out of any struggle you're experiencing right now. And yes, it takes perseverance. And yes, it takes effort. But so does everything in life. So, you know, you're going to put effort into something. Uh, you can put it into continuing the current struggle as it is, or you can put it into change. Now, that's easier said than done. It took me, you know, years and years and apparently a SWAT team to get me to the place where I was willing to start confronting some of those issues. And we can get into some more of the specifics. But, you know, the story of how I got started is unfortunately, at least from the people that I work with, incredibly common. And that is, I grew up to feel inferior. I felt like I was never enough. I wasn't good looking enough. I wasn't smart enough. I was a little bit of both, which almost made it worse because I was like, 
on the precipice of feeling perfect, but somehow in my head, perfection was the goal and I kept missing the mark. And when I kept missing the mark, at least the reinforcement I got from my parents was that indeed, yes, I was supposed to look for perfection and it wasn't coming. I kind of gave up on myself. I kind of just started saying, you know, what are the shortcuts? How do I get the reinforcement I'm looking for without putting in the work to get perfect, to get as close to perfect as, as which was the goal in my opinion at the time. And so, you know, there's so many different ways before drugs even entered the mix. Like I was a kleptomaniac. I would steal all the time. I would walk into a store and you could almost guarantee I would walk out with something that wasn't mine. And then I would gift those things to other people. Like I would just give you presents and I wouldn't ever tell you obviously that I stole those presents, but I stole money. I was constantly trying to A, get excitement and B, get validation by giving that away to other people. That's kind of one of the first ways that it got started. But I felt socially awkward and uncomfortable for years and years and years. And I mean, I'm not unique in that, right? It's like, I think that's the quintessential junior high and high school experience is to feel out of sorts. I don't know if you felt like you fit in all the time in your life. Oh, definitely, definitely not. Yeah, so we feel weird. And then we try to figure out ways to feel less weird. And I couldn't really figure it out. I felt awkward. I, you know, I have this story that I tell where, I was in love with this girl. This is still in Israel. I was in love with this girl in my class, and I really, it took me months to get up the courage to ask her out. And so I called her. This is back in the days of landlines. Uh, nobody had cell phones, even in junior high. So I called her home, and her dad answered, and that was weird enough because now I got to ask for her and say my name. And she picks up the phone, and we, you know, shoot the shit for like five minutes. And then I ask her out to a movie. But she was also dating the most popular guy in our class, which I knew. So not a good move on my behalf, but maybe a canary in the coal mine to some extent of what might happen later on in my life. And she said, I can't go out with you. I have a boyfriend. And the next day, everybody knew. So I, for weeks, maybe even months, it would be like the joke was about, you know, me having asked this girl out. I'm glad I didn't get beaten up because that dude was strong, the guy who she was dating. But that really got me feeling even more awkward, right? Because now I made a fool of myself. Now girls are never going to go out with me or like me, et cetera, et cetera. That story that we tell ourselves. And I didn't have a way of dealing with it. I just dealt with it internally with anxiety. I would have these weird stomach aches sometimes in school where I would have to get out of school and go home because I don't know if it was an ulcer at 14. That sounds insane to say, but I would have these intense stomach aches and I would have to go home. I just want you to know I had the exact same experience. Perfect. I would be out for like a week at a time with unclear stomach issues. And I can now look back and be like, oh, it was pretty severe anxiety. But I couldn't connect those dots. Yeah, no one knew. Why did my parents not go, hey, are you worried about anything in school? What's going on? They were just like, okay, well, tell us when it's over and you'll go back to school. So that was my way of dealing slash not dealing with it. And then we moved to the States which sounded exciting initially, but then I felt even more out of place because now all my friends weren't around. And so even the people that I did feel comfortable around were no longer there. And I felt completely out of sorts. I spoke the language, but not really well. Now I had no idea how to talk to girls. And so we were at a sleepaway camp for an Israeli boy Girl Scout kind of event. And some kid took out a handle of vodka and passed it around and I felt so uncool there was exactly zero percent probability that I would say no thank you I don't drink when it got to me because there's nothing I'm going to do to make myself feel even more awkward than I already do and so I grabbed it and I took a sip and it burned I mean it really made me almost want to throw up on the spot but talk about feeling awkward I wasn't going to do that so 
kept swallowing. It took like three or four swigs. It got passed on around a couple more times. And um, 20, 30 minutes after that, 15, 20 minutes, I'm feeling warm. And my thinking slows down. And I get a lot less concerned with what everybody thinks about what I'm saying. And I can talk to girls without worrying about what they're thinking about me. And it felt really nice for the first time in almost as long as I could remember, at least socially, I felt okay. And that was the beginning, right? Like I learned a very important lesson then, which was when I take stuff, I feel better about who I am. And I didn't know it at the time, but I would keep going on a search. So that was alcohol. And I started drinking then at least a few times a week with friends who were already drinking, but I wasn't in the club yet. And then we moved again and I was already drinking. So I had my drinking high school group of friends to find, but then they started smoking weed and somebody passed me a joint and pretty much the exact same thing happened. I started smoking weed right after that. And by the time I got to college, I was drinking and smoking essentially every day. My parents and I were not getting along. There was uh, so much conflict at home. I was ditching school. I was using drugs all the time. I was drinking at home. You know, at 17, 16 years old, just walking around like drinking beers at home like it was normal. I used substances to regulate how I felt all the time. And nobody really knew what to do about it. So when I got to college, it got worse. I went through a big breakup, which led me to harder drugs because the alcohol and weed weren't always working. So that's when coke and ecstasy and things like that entered the equation. And to just fast forward a little bit, ended up moving out to L.A., and that's where ecstasy and then meth eventually found their way into my life. And within, I'd say, six months to a year of trying meth, I was using it every day. Even when I first started trying it, I was already selling drugs. I was selling um, weed and ecstasy. And then just that's it. Drugs took over my life. I barely graduated college. I mean, I barely graduated high school, but I barely graduated college. And I made my living selling drugs, pretending that I was a musician. Yeah, so I was going to ask... Addiction is one of those things that addicts will, you know, admit themselves, you can be really good at hiding it up until a certain point. What did people in your life think? Were they aware of what was going on? Yeah. So let me just do a couple of things. First of all, I try not to believe that addicts are different than other people. And it's okay if we use that as a stand-in term for people who struggle with addiction. But I think we rely too much on the notion that there's something different about addicts from normal people. Look, all people are really good at hiding what's going on until it gets too far. That's a good point. If you think about it for a second, how many of us have known a couple or parents of a friend where everything seemed great? The family seemed like it was the most amazing family ever. They're having a great time. And then a month later, they're divorced. And you're like, what the hell happened there? Mm-hmm. That's because they're really good at hiding things. Or how many times have you walked around feeling incredibly anxious, but you have a new job and you're around a whole bunch of new people and you're not going to be the new person in the office saying, Hey, guys, I'm having real panic attacks this whole week. So if I don't come in, please excuse me. I'll work from home, but it's just it's a new environment and I don't know you guys. So I'm really just my anxiety is ramping up. Please excuse the interruption. We don't do that. We don't live in a society where it's okay to share. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. I think that's a really important distinction that, you know, there isn't a difference. I guess one question that I have for you before we get into this conversation is, do you think addiction can exists on a spectrum? Like we all have a degree of addiction within our personalities? Well, I don't think we have to go as far as saying we all have a degree of it, but I think it absolutely goes on a spectrum. By the way, even the clinical psychology and psychiatry field now recognize this, 
saying that there are low, moderate, and severe levels of addiction. The problem is because of programming and the way we've talked about it for so long, we just group them all together. And I think it makes sense, right? So I wrote a book called The Abstinence Myth. And for any of your listeners who care to check it out, literally, if you go to theabstinencemyth.com, we're giving away copies for shipping and handling right now. And the point that I make in the book is everybody always focuses on the use. And so you were asking, are addicts good at hiding their behavior? And the answer is yes. But first of all, because honestly, when you first start using, it is helping, right? Like, If you're really anxious and you drink, you feel less anxious. So Mm -hmm. it actually is doing what you wanted to do on the front end. Here's the problem and here's what I talk about in the book a lot. You're not dealing with what's making you anxious. And so what ends up happening to a lot of people who struggle with substance use or porn or binge eating or whatever it is that they end up compulsively relying on is they divert their stress, their anxiety, their shame about things that aren't working well in life into this new behavior, the new behavior relieves the stress and anxiety they have about it, but does not address the underlying cause at all. And so now they have like a Band-Aid, a really good Band-Aid. And that Band-Aid will work for months or years. Every once in a while, it'll work for decades. And the problem is you're never dealing with the underlying issue. So like guys who rely on porn, and I was one of these guys on like online sex and porn to relieve intimacy issues, guess what? Porn will never teach you how to be intimate. And so you never actually get better at it. You just end up saying to yourself, and a lot of guys do this all the time. They say, well, I'm not getting what I want in my relationship sexually or intimately, but I get it out of the porn. So I don't need to get it in my relationship, right? I'll just, I don't need to learn how to be more intimate with my wife because I get what I want in porn. And it's just not true your relationship with your wife will keep deteriorating until the point where you need to deal with it. And if you don't know how to deal with it and you don't have the tools, your relationship will fall apart. Same thing with compulsive eating. How many people watch their diet all day in public and where they are and then they go home and just binge eat the things they've wanted all day? Why? Because the healthy eating or the diet adjustments that they've made are all for show. They don't really feel comfortable in it. They just, they're following the trends in order to fit in. And I think what we need to start moving towards is a society, and that's why I wrote the book, that's why we have these conversations, is a society where at least in some arenas, I'm not suggesting everybody needs to be able to go into work and talk about everything that's going wrong in your life, but where we get arenas of support, where it's essentially unconditional support, right? I have this I hope I can swear on this podcast. Absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> so I have this uh, bracelet that I wear on my wrist all the time that says fuck shame. Comes out of one of my TED Talks. And I want us to live in an environment where we don't have to pretend to be perfect. Where we can be honest about what's going on. And when it's good, we get to celebrate it. And when it's bad, we get support. And that doesn't mean we get tossed into these buckets of, well, you know, you feel low right now and you want to spend a lot of time in bed. You're depressed. You must now be in the, you know, I'm a clinically depressed person bucket and for the rest of your life struggle with this thing. And that's kind of my dream because I went through that. I've been in that place where you get, your entire life gets explained by applying these small subset of labels to you. And this is who you are. You have ADHD, you know, and you're an addict. And now you're stuck in this place for the rest of your life. And we end up, as I've seen in research, we end up living up to that quote unquote potential. What comes to mind for me in hearing this is that 
you know, you grew up in an environment where perfection was the goal. I grew up in a very similar environment, so I totally understand that. Mm. And I feel like oftentimes anyone who grows up in that environment either, and I'm making a huge generalization here, but, you know, they kind of fall into two buckets. One is people who really excel yet in their heads are struggling so much with self-worth and just never feeling like they're good enough. And it pushes them to do more and be more, but never really feeling good enough. And then people who self-sabotage, whether overtly or unconsciously, because they never feel like they can be good enough. And I'm curious, you know, do you feel like your experience falls into one of those buckets? So I think it switched for me, if I'm honest, right? Like when I was growing up, up until a certain point, and it might be weird for a 42-year-old dude to be talking about what it was like when he was eight. I don't think it's weird for the record. I think that's very normal. Cool. Good. I'm I'm happy. Um, like right around the age of eight or 10 years old, something shifted for me. And there were a lot of things that happened at that time. So it's hard for me to disambiguate where it came out of. But like my dad cheated on my mom and left us. Now he came back after three days, but it was a really weird comeback. Like he came back after we all found out that he left. So my mom like woke us up from bed at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, before we had to go back to school to let us know dad left us and won't be coming back. And then three days later, he was just back home. Like nothing happened. Nobody sat us down. Nobody ever explained. I found out that he had cheated on my mom. And then my mom kind of started using me as a as a confidant because now I'd known enough. So I think I was like 10 or 11 years old. So it was not a good – I wasn't emotionally equipped to deal with some of the information I was getting. But that was a tough thing, right? Like dad leaving the house was a scary, scary thing. So that was one thing that happened. And then – you know, there's these memories of me starting to not perform perfectly. Look, it's not that hard to get straight, like 100% on your first grade, second grade, third grade, like math test. And I remember very distinctly coming home with a 97, which I was pretty damn proud of. And the answer I got from my dad was, what happened to the other three points? And I think he was kidding. But that's not the way I took it at the time for some reason. Well, there's this Jewish sarcasm that as a kid, you can't understand. As an adult, I get it better. But as a kid, I very similar experience where I was like, wait, what? What do you mean? Where's that 3%? But I I agree. I think they were kidding. (laughs) So I think he was kidding. And also knowing my dad now, even if he wasn't kidding, he definitely didn't mean it in the like, what's wrong with you, idiot? Because nobody talked about anything in more depth. That's all I got out of that interaction myself. And so, yeah, there was this sense that perfection is what we're going for. My dad had a lot of accolades and did really, really well. But everybody's dad is their superhero, right? So perfection is what we're going for. I can't be perfect. And I kept trying and it didn't work. And so at some point, yeah, I felt like nothing I was going to do was going to be good enough. And then I kind of gave up on myself. And the problem with that is I talk about this quite a lot in my TED Talks and some of the other and in the book. But there's a lot of research that suggests that our beliefs about ourselves and other people translate into this ongoing cycle of self-fulfilling prophecies and when I gave up on myself I started representing that that way to my parents which meant they kept looking at me like I was a loser I was reinforcing that I'm a loser they start yelling at me that I'm never going to be anything I start believing it and then next thing you know I barely make it into college right like I don't know I can kind of imagine the family you come from but graduating high school is not a win in my family no 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 Neither was going to college. Yeah, yeah. it's like graduating high school is like drinking water or breathing. Mm -hmm. Going to college was exactly the same. Honestly, graduating college was exactly the same. Like 
it is just an expected fact. And I I struggled to get in. I mean, thank God for SATs because I graduated in the lower 50th percentile in my high school. I ditched more days that I showed up to in senior year, right? Like I rode around with guys who like would steal cars during school. I, it was not a good scene. And so I barely made it to college. And then when I made it, I got as far away as I could. I went to UCLA. My parents were living in upstate New York. And I just went off the deep end. And so I kept proving to myself that nothing I was going to do would be good enough. And the only focus I had was on getting as far away from my parents and their influence. Yep. (laughs) I feel quite similarly to your experience. (laughs) So let's continue a little bit with where you were at in college. You're starting to deal drugs and you get caught. What transpired after that? Yeah. So, you know, dealing drugs is a really, I mean, it's not an easy job. It's a really simple job, right? As soon as I started buying drugs in quantity, and I did that initially because I couldn't afford the amount of ecstasy that I was doing myself. So my girlfriend and I were using a lot, and I was like, hey, I need to figure out a wholesale way of doing this. And so I started being the in-between, started selling drugs. It started really small with like our group of five to 10 friends. But as soon as you have a bunch of drugs, more people want them. And so more and more people came out of the woodwork. I ended up having to essentially hire other people to work for me. And it just kept going and going and going and growing to the point where I had three guys selling for me. We had hundreds of clients. You know, we were doing tens of thousands of dollars of business a day in the hundreds of thousands, half a million dollars a year in business. It was intense. It got really, really intense. Like my entire life, I came out to LA supposedly to come to UCLA and do music, but all I was really doing was just getting high all the time. I didn't hang out with anybody, period, who was not constantly messed up and or selling drugs to me like my dealers were people i would hang out with and the people that were buying for me or selling for me and that was it my entire world revolved around that reality and in that reality even though most people i don't think can understand what it's like i have to explain when you're in the middle of that it feels really normal right because that's what everybody's doing so all the guys above me and the guys that i was buying from had a lot of money and girls and drugs And I had a version of that. And all the people who were buying for me, I was somebody they looked up to and wanted to be around. So it actually felt really, really normal from that standpoint. It was just every once in a while, there would be a glimpse. Something would happen. Like you watch the movie The Matrix? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there'd be these things that would happen in my day where all of a sudden there would be like this little shift in The Matrix. And I would go, what the fuck is happening? Like, how is this my reality? And it could be a million things like, you know, my gun would fall out from under my seat in my car and would like slip and I'd have to look for it. Or I got in an accident once and I was carrying, you know, I don't even remember. I think it was like 10,000 ecstasy pills in the lining of my jacket. I'm like, this is really bad for an accident. And so I'm I'm not worried about the accident. I checked that I'm not broken or anything. But then my entire job is how do I get out of the scene as quickly as possible so I don't get arrested? Like all these really insane things. The people that I felt closest to other than the drug dealers that I knew were strippers i hung out with a lot of strippers because to me that was like the equivalent drug dealers is like the male version of strippers to me you live in this weird universe where everybody outside of your world thinks you're the biggest loser garbage that exists in the world but in your own little universe you're a king and you know living in that place for three four five years had its amazing moments had its incredibly painful moments and then had its monotony like every other way of life And I knew I was addicted to meth. I never felt addicted to any other drug, but I knew I was addicted to meth. I was using it all day, every day. I couldn't stop. 
you know, obviously I, I was making a living off of it and everybody around me was doing the same thing. And so I, uh, I'd gotten arrested a couple of times and one of those was in Beverly Hills. And so I was on probation in Beverly Hills for about three years and I just gotten off probation in Beverly Hills. I was on my motorcycle, which is where I would do a lot of the deliveries. And I just delivered about a half a pound of cocaine to one of the guys who was selling for me. And I was riding through Beverly Hills and then I got in this accident and broke my leg, tibia and fibula. I'm on the ground. I can't walk. And the cops and the paramedics come to get me and they load me up into the gurney and they grab my jacket for me, which I was really trying to prevent because in the lining of my jacket was the other half a pound of Coke. And they find it. They arrest me. I woke up, kind of came to in the hospital on a gurney, handcuffed to the bed with a cop next to me with like this orange sign on my chest that I'm under arrest. And when the cops realize that I can't walk, so I'm not really a flight risk, they let me go and they for three months kept trying to get me to give them names. And I wouldn't and I kept trying to evade them. And then one Saturday morning, they showed up at my house, full SWAT team, right? Black uh, shotguns and rifles and handguns just pointed at my face, screaming at me. Uh, And I'd taken some other drugs to fall asleep because meth makes it really hard to fall asleep. So when you need to, you take something else. And I could just tell, like it was one after another. It was like, whatever you believe in the God, the universe, something just giving me a complete stop sign, right? Like you have to take a break. And then I was in jail and I had to start figuring out, right? Is this going to be my life or am I going to find some other way out? And, you know, the way out that was given me by my lawyer was, hey, you got to go to rehab. And it wasn't a self-righteous kind of using drugs is not good for you. And that's why you got to go to rehab. It was like, if you don't go to rehab and get clean, the judge is going to put you away for 15 to 20 years. I said, let's go to rehab. Let's do it. But it was harder. It was harder than I thought it would be. I didn't really buy into the fact that I have to quit drugs. I just needed to do it for court. Again, long story short, I, um, I relapsed. I relapsed after a month in rehab. I was able to go two months living in rehab without them knowing that I relapsed or at least not testing me for it. And then they let me go New Year's Eve, which is to me the ultimate rehab test. Like, hey, it's New Year's Eve. You get to go out. See you tomorrow. You know, and and if you got your shit together, maybe you actually come back sober. I did not come back sober. I, uh, I spent the night doing meth at an ecstasy party with my friends. And I was just doing meth all night. And you know something is wrong in your life when that is the description of how you spend your night. And I was just bored. I was like... You know, half-naked people like giving each other massages on a carpet in some dingy little apartment in like West LA. And I'm thinking to myself, shit, I got three hours to go back. This is just boring. What do I do for the rest of the night? And I got back. They gave me a drug test. I tested dirty or with meth in my system and they kicked me out on the spot. Well, I think also, you know, when you leave an environment like rehab and you go back to your regular life, which is surrounded by people who are also doing the same thing, you know, you you have to start over completely. And, you know, if you're going back to the same people in that same environment, it's incredibly challenging. It is. And I think this is why and it's, how do I say this, well documented that there are huge, huge problems with relapse and then death oftentimes on the other side of traditional rehab because they don't really prepare you. Like, You know, they tell you to go to meetings or whatnot, but the work that I do with people now really deals with the high, deep level shame that a lot of us feel when we get stuck in these situations. And so, yeah, I mean, I was still in rehab, but 
I found ways just because, again, I'm going to do what I know how to do and I'm going to feel comfortable the way I know how to feel comfortable and that's what worked for me. And so when I relapsed and got kicked out, I kind of had to put on my thinking cap again and start figuring out, okay, well, how do we do this? Well, I think also our society doesn't exactly make it easy when you have a record and you're being told you need to start over. It doesn't. I didn't even know that at the time, to be perfectly honest, because what happened was, so, you know, I got kicked out of that rehab and my dad, who's passed now, but um, he used to call me every day when he was alive. And so he called me and, and I had all these lies just ready to go. I was like, oh, you know, the rehab's really far away from my studio and I'm driving around too much. So I need to find something that's closer to me. It was all bullshit. I just didn't want to tell him that I was kicked out. And I had this whole story. And in the middle of it, I started feeling this pain because for the first time in years, my parents actually knew everything I did other than this relapse. And so this voice inside just said to me, you know, just tell him the truth. Just tell him what is actually going on. And I mustered up the courage and I told him and he was so pissed. Like I'd never, ever heard my dad this pissed. And it still felt like amazing relief to actually be honest with him, right? Like both of them worked at the same time. Amazingly stressful and scary to tell him the truth and an incredible relief to not be lying to him. And so, you know, we did that. We went through and in the middle of that conversation, he was, when he was done yelling, he said, what do you expect me to do now? You've just thrown away the last three months of work and the 20 some thousand dollars they had spent on rehab. What do you expect us to do? And finally it dawned on me that they can't do anything and that it was 100% up to me. And it was the first time I'd realized that I'm in control. I need to figure out how to get this done and nobody else could figure it out for me. And so I didn't get sober quite that day, but what happened instead is I started taking ownership of what I needed to do. And so I still got high every day for the next two to three weeks, but I found my next treatment and I moved forward and I was able to find the place that I would stay sober in for eight months while I was fighting my case until I ended up having to go to jail for a year. So spoiler alert for anybody listening, you end up becoming a doctor and studying addiction. So clearly things shifted for you. Yeah. Where was that aha moment where you were like, you know what, I'm actually going to take my pain and turn it into my power? That's a great question. Um, it wasn't volitional at all. Like it wasn't planned. So as you pointed out, I couldn't get a job to save my life or my parents' money. I got out of jail after a year and was applying for work like at the mall, right? Just anywhere that I could get a job at restaurants. I didn't remember this until an interview a couple of days ago, but I almost got a job at this pizzeria because the guy who managed it was in recovery himself. And so the person at my sober living knew them and I had a job lined up to be essentially a pizza like delivery guy. That's the best that I could do. But then even that didn't happen because that manager got transferred to another store and I couldn't get a job because I had to check that box. I had nine felonies on my record. So I just couldn't get hired. And then the only next thing that I could think of doing because I needed to do something, I, it was nine months. I couldn't just stay stagnant. I had to go to school. I went back to school even though I swore off of school. So like I said, I barely made it out of UCLA and graduated. So now it's time for a master's and I applied for a master's at Cal State Long Beach because they didn't ask the question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? So I knew I had a chance there. Got in and I went all out, like no holds barred. I worked harder than anybody else. For the first time in my life, I did all the homework. I did everything that was asked of me. I was not willing to 
falter at all. Like I needed to figure this thing out. And I was a straight A student so much so that at the end of that first year, I got a scholarship that nobody even told me existed, or maybe I didn't research existed. I'm not really sure. But I got a scholarship that now paid for the whole thing for grad school, which was amazing because my parents were still fully supporting me. I still didn't have work. But then I had an advisor at Cal State Long Beach take me under their wing. Dennis Fisher is still somebody I keep in touch with to this day, you know, 15 years later. And um, his research organization, almost kind of like by complete chance, did research with homeless people who were drug addicts. So I spent my days learning how to interview and then interviewing people who were addicted and homeless for a study and then writing those results up. And it caught. I just I loved it. I love the work. I love connecting with these people. I loved figuring out the right questions to ask and how to ask them. And, you know, I, I was able to be comfortable. That's the thing is once you've been to where I've been, I got no judgment for anybody. I don't care what your current life situation is. I can't judge you, right? Because I've been, I've been worse. So that was really comfortable in that place. And so I decided that I wanted to study addiction. And I kept doing that at Cal State Long Beach and then became the first student out of that program that got into UCLA's PhD program, which is one of the top programs in the world. And yeah, I went after neuroscience and statistics and motivation and everything that I could figure out to study that would have something to do with addiction. And there were a lot of really interesting experiences along that road. But honestly, it helped me completely remove the not just the stigma but the curiosity or the unknown elements of my own struggle went by the wayside because now I studied it so well and I dove in so deeply that I I could tell my story now understanding what actually happened to me instead of just relying on these silly stupid sometimes labels of well I'm an addict that's why I behave the way I do that's shorthand right that's like saying I'm left-handed that's why I drive this way it's just not true so now that I was able to understand it really, really well, I started writing about it, had a website called All About Addiction and wrote there and then eventually started writing for Psychology Today and a lot of other networks. And then, you know, while I was doing my research, I decided one day that I knew too much and I had too many ideas on how to change the current system that I needed to leave academia. I needed to leave the school and get into the actual doing of the work to help people. So what does some of that work look like? You talk a lot about the abstinence myth and why, you know, that fails so many people. So in practice, you know, what have you learned from your experience and from your research that can help people who are also struggling with addiction? Okay. So the abstinence myth book came actually after I first came up with some of these methods. And when I left school, I left it because I did a study that looked at why people don't go into treatment. And there were four main reasons, four main objections that we found. One of them is shame. That's a pretty common one. And I talk about that a lot. Two other ones were cost and logistics. Rehab is expensive and it's really, really difficult to engage in it. I mean, just think of leaving everything behind for 30 or 60 or 90 days. It's tough. And even if you do outpatient rehab, it's like, 10, 12, 15 hours a week you've got to dedicate to this. It's hard and it doesn't go along with your work and it doesn't. they don't care about your commitments because the idea is you're an addict and if you don't put that front and center before everything else, then you're in denial and people that are in denial die and so you can't be in denial, you got to come to our side. And the bottom line is that the reality in the world, in the U.S. right now, is that 90% of people just say, no, thank you. They just don't participate. And so I left academia to start a rehab that offered people non-abstinence treatment because that was the fourth objection people had. They said, 
I know I need help, but I don't want to stop. And most, most, I mean, when I say that, I mean like 99% of providers will not give you help if you're not willing to quit. That's the first demand is you have to be willing to quit. And I said, screw that. Let's start something that gives people help whenever they want it, period, point blank. And so we started a rehab. That is an expensive endeavor and one that I was not necessarily fully prepared to run. It started out doing pretty well, but managing a company with 15, 20 employees and big overhead and all that was not something I didn't have any business experience. And so it was really, you know, I'll take it on myself. There were a lot of factors, but it went well in terms of the treatment, but I had a hard time running that business. And when that ended in 2017, I thought to myself, how do I take all the knowledge that I acquired and help on a big scale? Just for reference, there's about 21 to 25 million people struggling with addiction in this country right now, and about 2 million of them will get help this year, maybe 2.5 million. And I said, I want to affect like a million people, not, you know, in my rehab in five years, we were able to help about 250 people. That's nice, but that doesn't put a dent in the problem. So I said, how do I get to help a million people? And I realized, A, I got to write a book about the different methods, B, I've got to start something else, and that's something else for me was an online program that we can scale, that we can make easy to access for people who need help on the ground. And so I called that Ignited. That's what we shifted it for. And that's what we've been doing since late 2017 is offering online help for people who are struggling with addiction and mental health issues in a way that doesn't interfere with their job, doesn't kill their pocketbook, doesn't make them have to go anywhere for it, greatly reduces shame just because A, it's online, and so you can be relatively anonymous. B, because I think I'm pretty damn good at not shaming people. And so we've created this really safe environment. I just did an interview with one of our participants right before this, and he said, that's the thing that made me go your way is this whole fuck shame thing. I don't want to be ashamed of who I am anymore. I can be a good person and struggle. And so we've done it. Now it's been, I guess, a year and a half. We've had about 100. 30, 140 people participate and that keeps growing. And, you know, like I said, the goal is still a million. So we've sold a few thousands of copies of the book. We have a few hundreds of thousands more to go. But it feels really good to be able to help people the way they want to be helped instead of forcing them into a system that they really, really don't like. Well, I think also when it comes to addiction, sort of the holy grail, the goal is abstinence, right? Is to not use whatever substance or not participate in whatever activity. But at the end of the day, like, is that the answer? Is it to, you know, I guess I'm asking you this question, is the ultimate goal to just not engage with whatever behavior or substance? Or is it something more? I think the ultimate goal is to be happy. Yeah. So basically, like, using whether it be a substance or whether it be some kind of activity you're engaging in is really just a band-aid for whatever it is that you might be struggling with. and Yeah, I mean, like, look, we all know this, right? If we really, really think about it, we all know this. There are people who drink because they're having a really great day and, you know, they want to toast it. And there's people who drink because they're having a really, really shitty day and a really shitty year and a really shitty decade and they hate themselves because of where they come from and how they see themselves. And so drinking just makes it okay. Those are two different ways of engaging. And what I tell people all the time is, look, it'd be really useful for you to take a break because if you can take a break, we'll understand on a much deeper level what's going on and what your struggles are. You know, it'll be less easy to hide them with these uh, behaviors and chemicals. But you know what your struggle is. So let's set up an environment where you can be honest about it, number one. Then let's provide you with tools 
to uncover all the issues that you've been struggling with for those decades. And then finally, let's help you resolve them one by one, just literally chip away at them. And then you get to this place where my joke is when you don't care about drinking anymore, you can have a drink because it's no longer about I am drinking to fix my life. I'm drinking to feel okay. The alcohol was never really the problem in the first place, right? Even with opiates, the opiates are not the problem. The problem is that people feel so uncomfortable in their life that they would rather escape into oblivion than deal with it. And let's be honest, like we talked about earlier, our society doesn't exactly give them the message that, oh, come on in and tell us everything that's going on for you, honestly, and we will be okay with it. So something that comes up for me hearing this is, are there certain like substances or certain activities that should be avoided? Because there are certain things that are more addictive, like have that addictive property. So even if you've done the work, is it still possible to turn to them because they're just so addictive? Yeah, I mean, you know, the substances you're talking about is like heroin or meth, right? Yeah. These are the things you're talking about are kind of these hard drugs. But look, the biggest problem we have is with alcohol. The number one substance people are addicted to is alcohol. We'll see what happens with cannabis here pretty quickly because as it becomes legal, I think some people who are currently drinking will switch to cannabis because they'd rather have that. And we'll see. I think it'll equalize a little bit between those two, at least in the states that have passed it and made cannabis fully legal. But the thing about meth or heroin is that people typically get to it because they've tried the other things and those things haven't fixed the issue. And I'm I'm not talking, for instance, about all the people who got opiates through surgeries and therefore started using it as a medical necessity, but then got cut off and turned to heroin as a way of getting the fix that they needed because they couldn't get access to their pills anymore. But, you know, the people who got it kind of in a traditional way, heroin was just a really high level along their journey of drug use. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So what I'll tell you is I rarely maybe once or twice in the hundreds and hundreds of people that I've worked with has somebody said, well, I'd still like to use heroin, but only once in a while. That's mm-hmm. not what they say. What they say is I want to feel normal. I want to feel good. What does end up happening, again, this interview I just did, right? This guy who was using meth every day, all day, and then used drugs to fall asleep at night so that he could wake up the next day and use meth again. He started with Ignited, I think it's now four or five months ago, maybe a little bit more, maybe six months ago. And during that time, he's had about two or three slips, right? Initially, the slip lasted like a week because he still had a lot of judgment about it. Second time, it lasted a couple of days. He and I talked after that one. And then the last one was like a month ago, and it lasted one day, like one use episode. He used once. That's never happened to him before, where he didn't go into a spiral of using. So the question for me is not, is it okay for him to use? That's not what he's looking for. The question instead is, is it okay if he slips up that he can just jump back on the horse and keep doing the work and not be shamed and felt distraught for it? Because, you know, most people aren't asking for, can I use meth recreationally? What they're saying is, look, I know I got to quit this stuff. It's bad for me. It's draining my account. It's making me unhealthy. It's putting the people around me at risk. I want to stop that. But does that really mean I can't have a beer or a glass of champagne at my friend's wedding? Everybody always worries about weddings. They're always like, what if my friend gets married? Can I have a glass of champagne? (laughs) And my answer is always, you know, let's fix your life, right? Let's give you a life that you're proud of and you're happy with. 
And then you can do whatever you want because you're not trying to fix it using the substances. Let's stop constantly trying to figure out what drug is more addictive than another because then we're putting the focus again on the substance, pretending that there's something special about heroin that makes it more addictive. The thing about heroin is that by the time people try it, they are so desperate for relief, right? Nobody like, do you know anybody who's ever used heroin, like injected heroin? I do. Not many. Okay. When they were in that place in their life, there wasn't much going right. Very true. And so it's not that heroin is special. It's just that by the time you get there, because it's such a serious drug, you've kind of given up. So when we pull you back out of that place, that place of despair and hopelessness, what I found is for many people, maybe there's some nostalgic, oh my God, heroin used to be so good, but there's no real desire to use it because it isn't necessary anymore. You know, like that heavy duty, that's not a band-aid. Like heroin is like a freaking tourniquet with neosporin and gauze and like the most heavy duty intervention that you can provide for pain on a surface level. That's what heroin is, right? I have clients who are sometimes addicted to nitrous oxide whippets. That's the same thing to me, right? Being addicted to whippets is like, I would like to escape my reality. And so what we do at Ignited, the work is all about making them not need to escape their reality anymore. And what I see time after time is the desire for using just goes down right along with that. And I could imagine that sort of black and white mentality that, oh, I've slipped up. I've started using again. You know, I'm a failure. I can't be successful at this. So might as well keep using. That's a mentality that just sets people up for failure. But to have someone who has been through this experience themselves has slipped up, has been able to find a balance in their own life, tell them it's okay, like, let's start over again. That's far more encouraging than having, you know, a doctor who's maybe never experienced addiction themselves be like, well, you failed. And so back to rehab you go, let's start this whole thing over again. Totally. So what I actually tell people, and I use this example quite a bit, like we do, um, for some of you people who are listening right now, and maybe their use has not reached these epic levels. We do this thing called a 21-day habit reset challenge. And so some people come for unhealthy eating habits. Some people come for drinking. Other people come because they procrastinate too much or snooze too much or something, you know, just a habit they want to change. And what I tell people in the context of that program, I think the next one is going to happen in July, like the second week in July. We're going to wait till after the 4th of July to start changing people's habits again. (laughs) I have a feeling people are not going to be really amenable to that like on July 2nd, you know? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Can I just wait till after the 4th? Um, so we're going to start in the second week of July again. And what I tell people all the time in that context is if you actually look at the successful people at anything in life, these things that we call slip-ups and failures are exactly their markers of what you need to change. One of the biggest examples I give all the time is one around Thomas Edison and the light bulb. We've all heard this example before, right? But in his lab, it took about 10,000 experiments to create the first real functional light bulb. 10,000 experiments. And we flip out about somebody who relapses two or three times. But every experiment was a failure if you think about it, right? They would try a light bulb and they would, the thing would fizzle out in five seconds or blow up in their face. And they wouldn't say to themselves, well, can't make a light bulb. They said that didn't work. What works instead? And then they kept trying it and trying and trying, right? And so you can look at an endless number of examples. We use J.K. Rowling, Henry Ford. 
the people who are successful at anything are not the people who are afraid of falling down. There are people who don't get up after falling down because they're too scared of what happens when you get back up. And so you're going to slip up. News to everybody who's trying any change at all listening to this podcast. You're going to screw up. That's not failure. Failure is stopping trying this new way of being, this change, because you fell down, right? The failure comes from not getting up and continuing. That's what failure is. Falling down is not failing. It's one more version that you found out of a method that didn't work for you. So what I tell people around relapse is, hey, what didn't work? Like yesterday at noon when you decided it was a good time to drink, what was going on in your head? And then they just walk me through the story of their reality. And we go, oh, here you go. That's the indicator. You, you know, you felt really resentful of your wife because she forgot to blah, blah, blah. Let's work on that. Let's work on the resentment. Forget the drinking. Let's work on the resentment. Something that comes up for me is like anecdotally, you've seen so many people succeed using this method. Yeah. How much of this exists in research? Like are people researching this? Is that even possible? It's possible. There's a woman who I love, love, love. Her name is Katie Witkowitz. I can get you some links if you need it for her research. But she put out a study. I think at this point, it's almost 10 years ago that she put out the study. But she looked at what happens after a relapse. So one of the reasons you say the things you say about relapse, and by the way, a lot of people do. It's not about you. Was because we believe that relapses happen when people kind of fall off the wagon and then they're back in their old way of being, right? That's the real fear about relapses. Oh my God, he drank again. We're done for, right? So she did a study and she found that actually there are sort of like three main trajectories of what happens when people relapse. And one of them was a maintenance of kind of moderate consumption, right? They drink without a problem. That's one trajectory. And by the way, that had like 60 or 70% of the people in it. Another big chunk was people who drank. It started okay, and then they got really bad. She did it on alcohol. It got really excessive, and then they quit again and stayed quit for a long time. That's the second trajectory. That had 20-some people in it. And then a small group of people, 5 6 7%, who continue drinking problematically. And what I love about that research is it followed hundreds of people, and it gave us this more nuanced description of reality than a black or white version. And it said, hey, if you slip up, there's some different ways your drinking might look. Now, obviously, if you, if you slip up and you go right back to drinking heavily, probably a good idea to stop. And let's get back to the drawing board and figure it out. But do you see how even in having this conversation, there's a reduction of the judgment and not saying, oh, my God, you better not. Because if you and then all the scare tactics that follow along with that. Absolutely. So. Yes, there are studies. There's a guy named um, Bill Miller who's kind of one of the forefathers of this. There's a guy who's passed since Alan Marlett who was at University of Washington. He was actually Katie's advisor. The weird thing about it is when you look at this stuff, these people were around in the like 80s and 90s. So what sucks is this isn't even new knowledge, but we're not utilizing it. And so my hope is that we get to move past that and – you know, we get to start applying all these tools, all these amazing things that we know work in everyday life. So something that this makes me think of, and I know we discussed addiction existing on the spectrum, but how much do you believe in the idea of an addictive personality that, you know, maybe you can 
not use substances or not use some of these more extreme behaviors as this band-aid solution, but end up turning to other smaller, more like micro habits. Yeah. Is that something that exists? I love it. So yeah, we see a lot of uh, kind of shifting, right? We see a lot of transferring of addiction. So people will stop their drinking, but then all of a sudden start binge eating because they still need to rely on something to fill them up literally sometimes. And then after that, maybe even if they get a handle on that, maybe they'll go to the gym and now they work out three and a half hours a day, right? Or two hours a day. They transfer the addiction. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is to me, that is another signal that we haven't done the really deep work. And there's another piece that I really love that I've been able to kind of shift myself into in the last five, 10 years. And it's this. Some of us, and I've now put myself back in this box, we have these obsessive tendencies, right? When we do things, we tend to allow them to occupy a big part of our headspace, of our cognition, of our thinking. Now, what we've learned is that we should stop that, right? Because it can lead to addiction. It can lead to, you know, the work addiction, right? Like people who are, who spend too much time focusing on their work and, exercise addiction, even the positive addictions, there's a negative tone to them because of this obsession. And what I realized is if we think about it, it's not an addictive personality per se, but it is certainly an obsessive personality. It's certainly a way of being, you know, you can call it type A. There are all these different names that we've given it, right? But like anything else in life, it's got positive elements and negative elements. And I think what we end up doing over and over and over is, and this is a societal thing that we do, is unless it's some randomly accepted norm, right? Unless you behave in whatever we've agreed is the middle ground, you're considered abnormal. Even though none of us really behave at that middle ground. None of us are in the middle. Some of us have a little bit more obsessive. Some of us are a little bit more flighty. Some of us are incredibly timely and other ones have a much more flexible relationship to time. Some of us are really good with numbers and other ones can't process numbers to save their lives, but they're visually really expressive, right? We're all different. Does that make sense? Yep. And we live in a society, and I, I understand the survival element of this if you look back in our history, where moving towards the norm is what we've been celebrated for doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But I would argue that all of us have this unique way of being. And if we start paying attention to the positive attributes of what makes us unique, while at the same time paying attention to and minding the potentially harmful elements of that same exact thing, then we would all A, get more comfortable with ourselves. I go back to reduce the shame around who we are and how we behave. And maybe more importantly, we'd be able to start taking advantage of those things that make us special, right? Like my obsessiveness gets really weirdly paired up with, I'm really bad with time. I'm terrible at it. My assistant knows it. My wife knows it. I joke, but this is not really a joke. I think I'm the only drug dealer that had a personal assistant. And I did it because I suck at schedules and like bill paying and all those sorts of things. My brain has a hard time. I know what I'm supposed to do for the next two hours about. And I'll look at my calendar in the morning and I'll remember the first three or four hours and that's it. And People think it's funny and people think it's a joke that I tell. It's not. It's just the way I live my life. It's just how my brain functions. But at the same time, my 
compulsions work really interestingly with my inability to keep time where I will get really focused on doing something as well as I can or I will dive in more deeply maybe or care about elements of projects that people don't care about a lot because for me, what's right in front of me is the most important thing on the face of the earth and nothing else around it really exists when I'm in that hyper-focused place. Make sense? Mm. Yep. That also allowed a weird, socially anxious, upper-middle-class kid whose dad was a doctor to become like a pretty successful West LA drug dealer in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, like that obsessiveness allows me to do things really well. What I need to pay attention to is the boundaries that I put around myself. Like what makes rational sense for me to do and what doesn't. And so what I've developed over time is the skill to be able to have people around me and be pretty open with where I'm thinking of going and then saying, does this make sense to the rest of you? Or is it just some crazy shit that my head is saying to me because I've been there before, my head will go pretty crazy sometimes. Does that make sense? 100%. Like I can kind of relate it to my own experience where I'm someone who is very hyper aware of time and like what's coming up and, you know, where I'm supposed to be. I'm always on time. And it means that I can see big picture. I can see things long term. I can have a vision and I can see that through. But sometimes I just can't sit down and necessarily focus on what's happening right in front of me. Love it, right? So we all have these tendencies and calling it an addictive personality gives it a negative undertone. And what I say is, let's just recognize our differences. And, you know, like my assistant needs to be good at paying attention to time because I suck at it. So it sounds funny, but like today at 820 or whatever, I got a text. Just FYI, you've got a phone call at 830. And if I wouldn't have gotten that text, you know, the probability of me getting on the phone at 830, <laughs> it's zero. And that's beautiful. Like, Imagine if we all were really in the middle of what we believe is normal. Life would be so annoyingly boring all the time. Sophie, my amazing wife, and I are like, we're essentially polar opposites. I mean, we it's not even a joke as she thinks it's ridiculous right now. But like, we can't agree on what clothes we find sexy. Like, nothing that we believe or we see and we take for granted is almost the same between the two of us. Some of our core values are the same. But to me, that's what creates interest in our life. And I don't need to try to push away the obsessive parts of myself. I need to learn how to manage them and make the best use of them while not letting them take over my life. And by the way, that helps greatly reduce my anxiety and has allowed me, I'd say, over the last five, six years, really get comfortable with who I am, which once again reduces shame and makes it much less likely that I'm going to start relying on some substance to help myself. Because the thing we didn't talk about at all, and I love it because I freaked out another podcaster like three days ago with this. I was a heavy duty meth addict for four years of my life and all that crazy crap happened and I was fully sober for three years, but I'm not sober now. I drink. I drink socially. Sophie and I talk about the fact that, you know, we've done Molly or ecstasy a handful of times in the last few years and they've really helped overcome some like sexual trauma and things like that. I'm not sober, which freaks out everybody in recovery because they say to themselves, but wait, you are a heavy duty drug addict. How can you do this now? And I think that the only reason that it's hard for people to understand it is because they have an expectation that they know what a drug addict is supposed to look like and what they can and cannot do. And I don't think those expectations are true. Well, I think it comes back to that whole conversation we had about like, what is the goal of clearing addiction? You know, is it to be sober or is it to be happy? And 
if you're leading a happy life and you're not, you know, struggling with these obstacles when it comes to your self-worth and your identity and that you can truly be happy in your life, is that how you measure success when it comes to addiction? And if that's- We actually have an instrument in our program called the Quality of Life Assessment. And I'm going to guarantee here, here's another guarantee, right? If anybody is listening right now and is looking for help or knows somebody who's looking for help, I've never met anybody who scores high on their quality of life assessment and is bothered by their substance use. It doesn't happen. Hardly anybody comes in happy with where their life is, so their scores really suffer at first. But as you build up your satisfaction in life in general, you need to rely on these mediocre coping strategies. I mean, let's be honest about it, right? Like I drink socially. Yes, it reduces like stress and it it helps calm you a little bit in the moment, but it's a really shitty long-term tool. Totally. You wake up feeling kind of effed up and you get dry mouth and some headaches. It's not a great tool for stress reduction in the grand scheme of things. You know, I'm someone who doesn't have a history of substance abuse and I can drink socially and I can also make the choice not to drink because I don't want to. I don't feel like it's something that I want in my life in that moment or it's not going to be the best tool for stress reduction. I can also be really stressed and be like, you know, a glass of wine might actually feel really nice right now. And that's a really healthy mentality for me. And I think as a society, because we value sobriety as the number one metric for success when it comes to addiction, we don't allow people to have that healthy space around substances or around certain behaviors. Totally. And that's why I wrote a book called The Abstinence Myth, because it's not about the sobriety, it's about the life. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, for sharing your story and for sharing everything you've learned. And I know you are inspiring so many people And if people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they do that? Easiest is adjaffe.com. That's an easy website to remember. Or if you can remember the spelling of Ignited, which is I-G-N-T-D. I took out some vowels. I-G-N-T-D.com is another really great place to see what we're up to. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I'm so thrilled that we had this conversation and I think it's going to help a lot of people. So again, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and being willing to have this conversation. Huge thank you to Dr. Adi Jaffe for coming on the show today. As you can tell, his story is incredibly personal and just has a huge impact on anybody who hears it. I know it's affected me. And after I recorded this episode, I told Kurt all about it and all about him and just the influence that it's had on me and just thinking about my own upbringing and, you know, things that you might have done differently, decisions you made, and not to carry the shame around it, but to just acknowledge it and to use that as your power as you move forward. So huge thank you to Dr. Jaffe for coming on the show. I definitely encourage you to check him out, whether you struggle with addiction or not, or if you know someone who struggles with addiction, send this episode their way or send over his Ignited course. I think it could be so helpful to so many people. So I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And just a little life update. As you know from listening to the last couple of weeks, I have been on a two-week road trip with Kurt and Bodhi, and it was absolutely incredible. We traveled from San Francisco down to Joshua Tree, over to Zion, 
We also did Santa Fe and Albuquerque. We went over to Sedona and the Grand Canyon and then up along the California coast. So it was pretty incredible. It was a lot of ground to cover in two weeks, and I felt like it could have gone on for another two weeks. It was one of those things where the days felt super long, but then when it was done, I was so shocked that it flew by and just how quickly it went by. But I also look back and I'm like, wow, we did a lot of things. And it just allowed me the space to think about a lot of things. If you've ever been on a road trip, you know you have a lot of time sitting in a car and neither Kurt nor I was on our phone. I mean, he was doing most of the driving and I really made it my mission not to spend, you know, all my time on my phone. I was definitely on there doing research about where to eat and just last minute planning things, but I wasn't on social media. I wasn't working at all. And it just gave us space to talk about things that we're looking forward to. It reminded me a lot of our honeymoon last year when we went to Sonoma and Napa and just had that space, had the brain capacity after planning a wedding to talk about what we're looking forward to, what changes we want to make, what's important to us. And I just absolutely love that. And I feel like all of the places we explored were incredible. But what I love most is just having that time with my family to talk about these things and what's coming up and what we're grateful for. And those are the conversations that would never be able to be captured in, you know, a square image on Instagram. And it's something that I've been thinking about, about how I'm going to share about this trip because I am naturally a sharer. I do enjoy sharing. I also think that having, you know, a personal perspective on a trip provides incredible resources for people who want to do a similar trip. I know for me, like I look to blogs for suggestions on where to eat and where to stay and activities to do. It just feels a lot more personal than something you'd get from like a travel website. So for me, I I want to include that, but I also don't want to kind of degrade the trip by making it about how many likes and how pretty the pictures are because you can't necessarily capture all of that. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to share this in a way that is authentic to the trip and authentic to me, but also a great resource for you guys. So I'm not sharing too, too much about the trip right now. I will be sharing more about it next week and also in a blog post, so stay tuned for that. But next week is actually going to be a Q&A episode. I was looking back on the podcast archives and I realized that it's been like over a year since I've done a Q&A episode and things have been, you know, more focused on interviews and taking in knowledge and spreading information and just empowering you guys. But I do hope that this podcast can be more personal and you can get a sense of who I am and what I believe in and what's important to me. And I want to build that connection with you guys. So I was feeling like it was a little, you know, one-dimensional in that way. So it's time for a Q&A. I will be posting on Instagram asking you guys for your questions. So stay tuned for that if you have any questions for me. I have gotten a ton of questions recently, so I've been saving those and I'll be including those as well because it just made the most sense to include it on a podcast episode. But of course, if anything's come up from here on the show or anything that I've shared on various other platforms or just questions for me, whether they're personal or professional or whatever that might look like, I'm open to answering all of them. So stay tuned for that on Instagram. It's just the Healthy Maven. So I'll be posting in my stories and then you can ask your question there. So that's what's coming up next week. But we have a great lineup of guests. I am still deciding on whether or not I'm going to take a break for the summer. I do feel like I got a really nice break the last few weeks and it didn't feel too much to have the episodes going live. I do like to take things easy in the summer just to give myself a little space to breathe and take some time away from work to, you know, 
get ideas. I find that that's the best way for me to be inspired creatively and to come up with the stuff that I want to talk about is to separate myself a little bit from my work. I always tell people that I blog about my life. I don't live for the blog. So I need to create those boundaries for myself. Boundaries are something that are really, really important to me. Everyone has different boundaries, but that's how it works for me. So usually I take a couple weeks off in the summer, but I'm trying to decide if I'm going to do it in July or August or take a break at all. I don't know. We'll see. I'm just letting my intuition guide me instead of being like too strict about it because I'm someone who can take boundaries to an extreme. So boundaries are important, but for me they can be a little too intense when they become rules. And so just letting my intuition guide me. So stay tuned for that. You'll know for sure if I'm taking a break. You'll have a heads up. But we do have a good lineup of people coming up soon, so no worries about that. But next week is all about the Q&A, all about just me chatting and sharing, and I hope you guys like episodes like that. So stay tuned for that. And if anything came up for you guys from today's episode or the last few weeks, definitely drop a comment in the THM Tribe. It's just facebook.com slash group slash THM Tribe. And if you have any feedback for me, I would love if you left a review on iTunes or whatever podcast player that you use. You can even do it on your phone. Just leave a rating and a review. It means a ton to me. So I'm so grateful for everyone who has left a review. If you haven't done so already and you enjoy the show, I would be so, so grateful if you did that. And otherwise, lots of good stuff coming up. I hope you are all enjoying your summer so far, wherever you may be. And Yeah, I'm just feeling good to be back. So I will talk with you guys soon. Have a good one. Bye.